So we have come to the final part of our Glad You Asked series. And for those of you who do not know what the series is about, we gave the online world and our church an opportunity to send us the questions you've always wanted to ask. And it's been so much fun. Whether it's the Sunday questions or the midweek questions, I've had a ball and I'm hoping it's been an incredible experience for you. Some of these questions have been incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging to stand up and answer the questions, but we always want to trust God's word, God's perspective, and God's heart. And that leads us to our final question today. A few weeks ago, we celebrated another anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 event that devastated the world. Now, on the social media, uh, when we got to the 20th anniversary, a number of people were asking, so what were you doing on that day? And if you were not in nappies or being born on that day, you probably remember what you were doing on that day. I put out on social what I was doing on that day. Um, so I was in a band called Flat World Society, and no, I am not a flat earther, um, all tongue-in-cheek, but we won a big competition and we happened to win some recording time at SABC Studios. So we were spending a week at SABC Studios and on that day, we found out that Rodriguez, Sugar Man, if you don't know who Sugar Man is, ask your parents, all right? And um, he was next door and he was setting up for a live show and he heard that we were there and he came and sat with us and we literally spent hours just shooting the breeze. One of my friends phoned his mom and he's like, hey mom, I've got someone on the phone for you. And man, I'm sure you heard her scream because she was like over the moon that she was speaking to Rodriguez on the phone. But while we were having this conversation in one of the studio lounges, the producer came running to us and said, guys, you've got to come and see what's just happened. And we ran and we saw this unfold on the TV. And that has changed the world in so many ways. But what I've noticed since 9-11, and a lot of people have written about this as well, is that there have been kind of two opposite responses to what happened on 9-11. On one hand, we have most certainly seen an increase in Islamophobia. Whether it be South Africa or in the States or in Europe, where Muslims are increasingly seen as just covert terrorists. Every Muslim is a terrorist. On the other hand, we've seen a tolerance of Islam, and not only of Muslim people, which we'll speak about later, but of Islamic ideologies and even the Islamic religion. Do you know that, strangely enough, after 9-11, we saw this strange resurgence of Western conversions to Islam. The Quran became a bestseller for a number of years. And so here we are in 2021, not only as a result of 9-11 talking about this discussion, but we're going to be asking this question today, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? And the reason why I bring up 9-11 and the responses to 9-11 it's not because this is going to be a political sermon in any way, but I want you to take notice of your heart. As you see someone dressed clearly like a Muslim in the mall or in your neighborhood, what goes on inside here? Do you tend towards some form of Islamophobia? 
Or do you tend to kind of be repelled by that? And all, like maybe Muslims and Christians do worship the same God. Not only do I want to be tolerant to them and their freedom to practice their religion, hey, but maybe there's more to this. This is such a deeply emotive question that we need to check our own hearts so that we can actually hear the truth this morning. So do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Now, while today we're focusing on Christianity and Islam, a number of weeks ago in one of our sermons, we spoke about this idea that maybe all religions lead to the same God. That we're all kind of wandering around in the dark and ultimately it's kind of like the rainbow nation of religions. We all, all roads lead to heaven. And I spoke about the fact that that is just logically impossible. When you look beyond the surface, because yes, at a surface level, all religions have some form of love your neighbor, be good people. But when you look beneath the surface at what all the various religions have to say about God, about humanity, about sin, about salvation, about the world, about the future, and more specifically about Jesus Christ, they are irreconcilable ideas. It is logically impossible for all religions to be right. On the other hand, some have, in the name of wanting to be tolerant, are just, you know, there's this heart response. I, I just want to be gracious towards my Muslim or my Hindu or my Buddhist neighbor. So out of this idea of tolerance, I want all religions to lead to the same God. The irony behind that is, while I understand that impulse to be tolerant, you have just insulted 90% of the world. Because you're claiming to have a truth position which is superior to all other truth positions. And so it is actually impossible to be neutral on this issue. And so no, not all religions lead to heaven. Not all religions lead to the same God. But today we're going to focus on specifically the relationship between Christianity and Islam. And 9-11 is not the only event we've got uh, that has made this so complicated. If you look back to church history, you can look at the, just the debates around the Holy Land and uh, the, the Crusades and the fact that blood has been shed on both sides by both sides, making it, again, so deeply emotive and complicated. But where, does it, where did this idea come from? That maybe Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Well, oddly enough, there's some, and I say in inverted commas, a biblical basis for this. And here's what I mean by that. Both Muslims and Christians would claim to be descendants by faith of Abraham. We have three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. All would claim to be descendants by faith of Abraham. The three monotheistic world religions are the three Abrahamic religions. But whereas, and maybe you growing up in Sunday school, you heard the stories, whereas we would see our faith progeny coming from Abraham through Isaac, a Muslim would see their faith progeny coming from Abraham through Ishmael. So for those of you that that's like, Stephen, I don't know what you're talking about. Just a brief recap. 
God is wanting to engage the world. He is wanting to bless a holy nation so that through this holy family and this holy nation that the whole world would be blessed. The ultimate fulfillment of that is in Jesus Christ. But he starts off with one family, with Abraham and Sarah. And he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you into a great nation and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. One problem, almost 100 years old, no children. But Abraham believes God and it is credited to him as righteousness. About 10 years pass by and no children. They've obeyed God. They've moved from earth. They've moved into the land of Canaan. Still no children. So uh, uh, Sarah says to Abraham, listen, why don't we come up with a plan? Why don't you take Hagar, our Egyptian slave? Why don't you lie with her and just see what happens there? Abraham didn't complain. So he went and lay with Hagar and she gave birth to Ishmael. And God says, but this wasn't my plan for you. This holy nation was going to come from you and Sarah. You've taken things into your own hands and have complicated the whole issue. Only much later did Abraham and Sarah receive their miracle baby, Isaac. So we've got Ishmael, the older brother, and Isaac, the younger brother. And then there's the famous story of the incredible test of Abraham, where God was testing him, are you prepared to offer your son to me? The way we read our Bibles, we would understand that the test was concerning Isaac. And that Isaac went up the hill and that God provided a substitutionary sacrifice on the hill. By the way, the very same hill where God provided the substitutionary sacrifice of his son 2,000 years later. Just by the way, what the Muslim would say is that, no, 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 Abraham went up that mountain with Ishmael. So now, what do we do with that? Is this a case of he said, she said? Because as, as far as I know, there were no iPhones up on that mountain. So how can we prove whether it was Isaac or Ishmael? Well, here's the thing. There was someone there. In fact, there were two people there, Isaac, Abraham and Isaac. And that history was recorded. That happened about 2,000 years before Christ, so roughly 4,000 years ago. And that version of events went unchallenged for over 2,500 years. By the way, the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus endorsed had this version of events. No one for a second ever thought that it wasn't Abraham and Isaac for over 2,500 years. But when Islam came into existence in the 7th century, suddenly there's a revision of this historical event. So now you've got to think to yourself, if a certain version of history has remained the same for 2,500 years, and suddenly a new version of that story comes into play, which version should we be trusting? So as Christians, I don't think that needs to cause us any anxiety whether or not it was Abraham and Isaac or Abraham and Ishmael. That's point number one. So how did Islam come into being? Well, so Muhammad, and you would know him as the Muslim prophet, Muhammad uh, was born and he had quite a tragic childhood. He lost both of his parents by age six. He was taken in by his grandfather and lost his grandfather by age 10. So by age 10, he was orphaned and he was taken in by his uncle, who basically grew him into be, to become a very wealthy trader. 
And everything changed on his 40th birthday. Because on his 40th birthday, he received a vision which he would claim came from the angel Gabriel. And the Abril, the, <laughs> the, Abril, the angel Gabriel said to Muhammad in this vision, all the other world religions are in falsehood. And I have appointed you to restore true worship to the true God, Allah. Now, maybe that concerns some of you because you're like, Gabriel, that's like top two angel stuff. I mean, that's like the vice president telling me to do something. I believe the vice president, right? So what do we do with that? Well, let me tell you what Paul writes in the book of Galatians. Galatians 1 verses 8. But even if we, referring to him and the apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be, some of your Bible translations say anathema. Let him be eternally condemned. These are hectic words. Paul is saying if an apostle comes and preaches a different gospel, or even if Gabriel himself came and preached a different gospel, you are to reject it. So here's something I learned, which was new for me, but it came up all over the research. And that was uh, when Muhammad first had these visions, he actually first thought that these were demonically inspired visions. And he was freaked out. And he was probably right the first time around. He tried to kill himself by throwing himself off a cliff until his wife and his wife's cousin convinced him that they were not demonically inspired, but they were in fact from God. And really from this vision and subsequent visions, that is where we get the basic tenets of Islam and the source of the Quran. What would happen is he would go into these trances. He would kind of shake as if he kind of had epilepsy type thing. And then he would come out. He was illiterate, so he couldn't write down what he saw and what he received through these revelations. He would have these scribes who would write down all that had happened. And, and that is where we get Islam and where we get the Quran. So what does it take to be a good Muslim? Well, if you want to be a good Muslim and you want to escape the wrath of God, if you want to achieve salvation, you have to fulfill the five pillars of faith. The first pillar of faith that you have to fulfill is this recitation. It's kind of the most basic doctrine that you've got to say when you convert to become a Muslim. And you've got to say this, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. Then pillar number two is the five daily prescribed prayers. You go to face Mecca. Uh, some of those prayer rugs, actually, some of them actually come with compasses in them so that you can face Mecca. And these are uh, by memory. These are by rote that you say these five prescribed prayers. Pillar number three is almsgiving, giving to the poor and giving towards the cause of Islam. Pillar number four is fasting. There are a number of fasts, so the most important of which is Ramadan. And uh, pillar number five is every Muslim at least once in their lifetime has to go to Mecca on a pilgrimage tour. Then there is a potential sixth pillar that some see it simply as an important part of Islam. Others see it as a sixth pillar, and that is the pillar or the idea of jihad, holy war. Obviously, more militant Muslims would see that as a sixth pillar, and they would see that as literal holy war, shedding the blood of infidels, of unbelievers. More moderate Muslims, probably your neighbors around you, they would tend to see this as a metaphor more for the internal struggle within themselves or between them and the world. 
So what does Islam teach about God? Well, on the front end, there are actually some commonalities. I spoke to you at the beginning about the fact that Islam is a monotheistic religion, one of the three world major monotheistic religions. So they would agree there is one God. They would also say that this God is creator, this God is judge, this God is king, this God is holy, and this is the only God that can rule and judge and forgive. Just by the way, there's something that you need to know about the word Allah. The word Allah is an Arabic word, not a Muslim word. What do I mean by that? Just like in English, I can take the word God and I can put a definite article in front of it, the God, as opposed to a God. Allah is the God in Arabic. In fact, if you look at Arabic translations of the Christian Bible, whenever the word God is there, is the word Allah. Now, that doesn't mean they're worshiping the Muslim God. The problem is not the word, but how Christians define God versus how Muslims define God. So we've looked at some of the commonalities. What are some of the differences? Well, let's compare how God is one in Islam versus God is three in one in Christianity. In Islam, the word for kind of the essential nature of who Allah is, is the word Tawhid, the word Tawhid, T-A-W-H-I-D. And according to the Tawhid of God, he is undivided and singular. Another technical word for that is he is a monad. There is no division within himself. Chapter 112 of the Quran says, He is Allah, who is one. Allah, the eternal refuge. Listen to this. He neither begets, nor is born, nor is there to him any equivalent. Now compare that to the Christian idea of God. We would also say God is one, but we would say there is a diversity within the Godhead. I know that the Trinity is an incredible, powerful mystery, but God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, but one essence, one God. On one hand, we can say the Lord your God is one, and we can worship the Father and worship the Son and worship the Holy Spirit. Now, for the Muslim, that is the highest blasphemy, to challenge the singularity of who Allah is. Now let's compare that in Islam, God is unknowable versus in Christianity, God is knowable. So when Islam talks about the Tawhid of God, yes, he is singular, he is undivided, but he is completely so other, so holy, so separate from this creation, and we could go that far with them as well, but they would say he is so holy that he is unknowable. We can know his will but it is mediated through angels and prophets, but we cannot know him in any relational or any intimate way. Once again, this is absolute blasphemy for Muslims when we say, no, 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 God wants to be known. Paul says that I may know him. We say that God sent his son into the world so that we can see the radiance of God's glory in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself teaches us to pray to his father so that we can have the same relationship to God as Jesus, his son, does. God is knowable, wonderfully knowable in the idea of Christianity, but that is blasphemy in Islam. So what do they say about Jesus? Well, let's compare 
that in Islam, Jesus is just a human prophet versus in Christianity, the divine son of God. Maybe you don't know this, but Islam actually sees, they actually very much honor Jesus. They would see him as a Muslim prophet for his time, a Muslim prophet in line with, now again, this is according to their scriptures, Noah, Moses, Jesus, and then superseded by the final prophet, Muhammad. So they would say he's just a divine, sorry, he's just a human prophet, a prophet that God used for his time, but just a human prophet, whereas we see Jesus as the incarnation of God on earth that he is the son of God, and that when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Once again, blasphemous for Muslims. So here's the thing. On one hand, they see Jesus as simply a, a human prophet. But on the other hand, even according to their own scriptures, Jesus performs more miracles than any of the other prophets, including Muhammad, who only one miracle is attested to him. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a sinless life according to the Quran. And Jesus ascended directly into heaven without dying. And so they really honor Jesus as far as one can honor a human prophet. But what does that mean? No cross. No substitutionary sacrifice. No atonement for sins. And no resurrection. As far as I'm concerned, that's a pretty big deal. Finally, as a result of their view of Jesus and how forgiveness and atonement works, let's compare the Islam view of salvation being saved by law versus the Christian view of salvation being saved by grace. You see, in Christianity, we understand that we are born sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. What do I mean by that? I know that the world finds us highly offensive but if you've been a parent, you know the truth of this. You don't have to teach your babies to be selfish. You don't have to teach them to throw the toys out the cot. Somehow we've got to train them to do the good things of life, but all the evil stuff, they do all on their own. There's not a parent in the world, regardless of religion, that has not at one stage called their children demons. That is the evidence that we're born sinners. And so therefore... We need a savior. We need a savior to do what we cannot do on our behalf. To live the perfect sinless life on our behalf. And to pay the consequences of humanity's sin on our behalf. And to defeat death because up to now, no human has ever been able to defeat death. Defeat death, sin, hell, and Satan. And so we look at the savior, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life in our place who died the death for sin that we should have died, who raised, was raised from the dead, defeating death. And so when we trust in Jesus Christ, this is the scandal of Christianity, the righteousness of his life is given to me, even though I don't deserve it. Because the failures of my life were taken upon him on the cross. And that is a gift. There's nothing I can do to earn that. Just trust Jesus and receive that gift of grace. The Muslim idea of humanity is almost more, they would definitely not say that we're born sinners, almost more, if I use my own language, like we're born in a neutral state. We're neither deserving of 
paradise or heaven, nor are we deserving of hell. And so it is by my works according to the law that God by his mercy saves me if I'm a good Muslim. This is what it says in the Quran. They whose balances shall be heavy shall be blessed. But they whose balances shall be light, they shall lose their soul abiding in hell forever. In other words, in this life, there is no assurance of salvation. There is no assurance of God's mercy, forgiveness, of grace. And one day, there's going to be this divine weighing. And if the one side is higher than the other, I am saved. So, maybe even after hearing all of that, some of you still say, but Stephen, you know what? We're talking about one God. We're talking about, in you know, a high view of Jesus. Yes, they get some details wrong. But can't we be generous towards that? I mean, is God really going to send someone to hell because they got his name wrong? One of the metaphors used by people who might want to claim that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, I'm going to kind of apply it to my life. Imagine you're walking through the Mall of the South this week and you bump into someone at a coffee shop and you ask them about, or they tell you, you tell them where you're from, and Riverside Community Church, they're like, oh, I know Stephen Pullman. Oh, where do you know him from? Oh, I went to high school with him. Well, what is he like? Oh, he had long hair, peroxided hair. He still thought he was a surfer after he moved here from P.E., Loved skating, loved sports, loved music. And you're like, oh, wow, that's so interesting. The next day, you meet someone else who knew me in the same shop, but they knew me from a few years ago. Oh, tell me what Stephen was like. Oh, he had no hair. He would kill himself on a skateboard. Doesn't do any sports unless you count fishing. And yes, he loves music. Now, it doesn't take long to realize that even those two characters of me are quite different, same guy. And so some would say, that's kind of Christianity and Islam, same God, maybe with a few different ideas. Whereas when we truly and honestly look at the differences, it's more like meeting someone who gives you a certain set of memories concerning me and meeting somebody else. And they're like, oh, Stephen Pullman, Riverside Community Church. Yes, a born, you know, 1980, 23rd of May. Yeah, yeah, that's him. Oh, I know Stephen, six foot six, long blonde hair, Asian, Las Ballet. You can't unsee that now, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter which way you look at it, that's not me. And in the same way, the differences between how Islam talks about God and the way Christianity talks about God, they are, they are just so different, we cannot reconcile them. So here's a slightly different question. While we see huge differences, maybe God is up in heaven and is God willing to receive Muslim worship as genuine worship? Well, to help answer that question, I'm going to be reading from John chapter 8, verses 39. Jesus in John chapter 8 is having a big debate with the Pharisees. He seems to love doing that. And um, things are getting quite heated. And he's doubting their faith. And in verse 39, the Pharisees respond by saying, Abraham is our father. In other words... Their claim to be the children of God is the fact that they are ethnic descendants of Abraham. That is the first argument that they give Jesus for why his view of the Pharisees is wrong. This is what Jesus said. If you were Abraham's children,
Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God the truth and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. So does God accept Muslim worship as genuine? As people who have rejected the Son, the answer is no. Now guys, we could close in prayer and all feel so right if you're a Christian here this morning. And I don't want to end now because we've got some great theory and a great platform for maybe understanding this conversation. But some of you have Muslim friends. Some of you have Muslim neighbors. Some of you have been on missions trips to or involving Muslims. Some of you even have Muslim backgrounds or Muslim family members. And somehow what we talk about today has to translate in now what? Now what? So to be honest, and I wouldn't be the best equipped to do this, guys like Yaku and Craig and Scott would probably be far better equipped to teach you on these kinds of things. How do we engage our Muslim neighbors and our Muslim friends? But I do want to give you a number of quick thoughts. And the first one is this. Love your Muslim neighbors by truly loving Jesus. Now, maybe you say, Stephen, but we're here at church. You know, I gave up watching sports or lying in you, preaching to the choir here. But think about it from a Muslim perspective. Being a Muslim is not just about what I do on one day of the week. It's a whole identity. It affects what I eat, where I go, everything about me. And they look at the Western world, which for many, many centuries self-defined as Christian. And they look at the compromise. And they look at the stuff going on and they're saying, no ways. Why would I want to become a Christian if that's what Christianity is about? Earlier, I made the point that in Islam, God is unknowable. But in Christianity, God is wonderfully knowable in Jesus Christ. Now, that's not just a doctrine. That's got to mean something for you. That's got to look like something. That's got to feel like something. And so if one of the biggest differences between you and your Muslim friend as a devout Christian and a devout Muslim is they are walking around believing, I cannot know God, and you're walking around knowing God in Jesus Christ. And so one of the best ways that you can love your Muslim friend is by loving Jesus and walking with him and knowing him and letting that shine out of your life. Number two, love your Muslim neighbors by truly loving them. At the beginning of the message, I pointed out how since 9-11, there's been kind of two diverging responses. The one is kind of syncretism. Maybe we worship the same God. Not only are we going to be tolerant of Muslim people, but maybe of Muslim ideologies. 
The other, and, and we've spoken about that. We've addressed that. The other side is Islamophobia. And if I had to take a guess as to where most of us are at, most of us are probably on that side of things. Where we see a Muslim. And at some point, whether it's just bad joking or whether it's legitimate fears, we're like, oh, there's a suicide bomber just waiting to happen. Guys, as a Christian, as a Christian, let me just say, there is zero room for Islamophobia. Zero room for increased fear. Zero room for increased hatred. Zero room for caricatures and stereotypes and generalizations. Zero room. Some of you would push back and say, yo, but Stephen, they're killing us. And it is true. There are certain countries in the world where Christians are at times physically and violently persecuted because of our faith in Christ. Well, let me tell you what Jesus would say to that and what those same Christians would say to that. They would quote Jesus in the book of Matthew where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you know that there's another side to the story? Yes, there are places in the world where Christians are persecuted in Muslim countries because of our faith. Do you know that there are places in the world where Muslims are physically and violently persecuted for their faith? China, India, recently Myanmar, where Christians are put, sorry, Muslims are put to death. Our guys, as our Christian witness, not only should we care so deeply about our brothers and sisters who are losing their lives for the sake of Christ, but as Christians, we are to look out for the least of these. And if there is any minority experiencing such injustice, we need to care deeply about that. And that in no way goes against what we believe to be true about God. If anything, because we worship a God who laid down his life for his enemies, we ought to do the same. So when I say I love our Muslim neighbors, I mean that. And maybe some of us need to repent of fear and caricatures and stereotypes, hatred. You know, Nabil Qureshi, some of you know him. He's, he wrote the book that is probably the book that is most taken out of our church library. It is a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Very devout, moderate Muslim family. He was brought up in the United States. Highly intelligent, he was trained to basically demolish the average sort of Christian boy at girl in high school with his debates. Anyway, he went to varsity, undergrad, went to postgrad, started studying medicine, and he met this guy called David Wood. And they became uh, kind of bunkmates, what do you call it? Um, they stayed in the same dorm. And Nabil Qureshi in his book says, David was the first... Christian ever to have loved me. And that broke my heart. I asked myself, how many hundreds of Christians has he met? Well, thank God for David Wood. Now, David Wood was a passionate Christian. He was an informed Christian, and they would have these debates. Nabil Qureshi eventually did become a Christian, and sadly, he passed away a number of years ago. 
Uh, but David would, in writing of his friend Nabil, he says, the thing that saved us was our friendship. You must understand that for a Muslim to consider becoming a Christian is like the ultimate blasphemy. To look at Muhammad and look at some of the facts, to look at the Quran and some of the developments around the Quran, to look at some of the truths of who Jesus is, and to even consider that maybe God is divided and there is a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit, and maybe Jesus is the divine Son of God. That is not a neutral issue for a Muslim. And they would get into these heated debates. But David said the fact that we were friends was part of the space that was created that we could continue having these conversations. The final encouragement is love your Muslim neighbor with the good news. Most Muslims have an incredible zeal for them. And sometimes makes me think about You know, you know I think about Paul, and Paul and going to go to the school of chapter 17. Paul is going to go to the pagan city, at the and he speaks to pagan philosophers. He walks around, and he sees all of these idols, and he sees all of these idols, and he sees all of these idols, and he sees all of these I see, I see that, that you're deeply heretical and you're not going to the church to go No, that's no, not what he says. He says, I see that you're deeply In other words, I was coming out of that, you don't know Paul and you didn't know He says, I recognize a desire for God. Now, I'm not going to this conversation. Build bridges where I can. Confront where I must. Point towards Jesus, Jesus ultimately, ultimately as the God of the judge and the resurrection one. Which he did. So I want to advise you that if you're going to speak to your Muslim neighbors and your Muslim friends, not to come out that's the shotgun. Showing them how wrong they are at every point, even if technically you're right. I see in you a zeal for God. Let's start there. Guys, as we spoke about earlier and as we sung so beautifully this morning, we can know God in Jesus Christ. We can know grace. We can know forgiveness. We can have assurance of salvation. And that is something beautiful that we get to talk about and share and offer up as a gift to our Muslim neighbors. It takes time. I know with Nabil Karishi in this particular book, it took him four years of debating with his friend David before he became a Christian. That is being roommates. So let us graciously, lovingly, with the truth of God and the grace of God, be the light of the world to our neighbors. Let us pray. Father, we love you. But the only way we can say that is because you have loved us. And the only way we know that you loved us is by sending your son as as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, as your word says. So we know your love. We have friends 
We have families, we have neighbors who don't know your love. So Father God, I pray that today is an equipping moment. Not just information. Yes, maybe we've walked away with a few new facts rattling around our minds. But maybe even an opportunity for transformation where we need to repent. On one hand, maybe giving in to fear and, and hatred of our Muslim friends. On the other hand, maybe some of us have been challenged with regards to this idea that no, we are not worshiping the same God. There are irreconcilable differences. But that makes us grateful for the salvation we do have in Christ. Father, I pray that there would be an increase to which we have a holy zeal for God, but one that comes out of a deep love for God. And Father, may you display that love in our lives and through our lives. May we repent where we need to repent today. Not only repenting from, but repenting to to be the voice and the presence of Christ in this world. Give us courage. Give us opportunity. Give us your spirits. Give us conviction. And give us love and power to be your witnesses in this world. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.